That was a quick transition. Hey, Chapel family. If I were to give you, me personally, Ryan Torona, if I were to give you $10 million today, just individually, because I won the lottery a couple nights ago, uh, how thankful would you be to me and for how long? Just $10 million bucks. Oh, we're doing this again. Okay, let me just ask specific people. Gary Randolph, I just gave you $10 million. How thankful to me are you and for how long? Are you thankful for one day? For as long as you had the money. Two days. Two days. Okay. Okay, as long as you had the money, you're thankful to me. Why? I, didn't, I wouldn't be responsible for blowing it. Okay. Uh, how long would you be thankful, Amber, if I gave you $10 million? To one day? One week? What? You're already thankful for it? This is my, this is my former neighbor. It hurts so bad to say it now that I'm homeless. Um, I do miss you guys. And I, I met one of my neighbors, and I was already disappointed. You set the bar so high. You set the bar so high. I met them, and I was like, uh, uh, I don't believe in karma. I believe in Jesus. But that's okay. Uh, <laughs> I do. But I have one neighbor. They got a shot. Hopefully, they don't start coming to the chapel and watch past episodes of this. But... Um, Lisa, how thankful are you to me if I give you $10 million today? Forever? Okay. This, this is why I'm asking you this, because this rocked me this week. This perspective really floored me. I, it's not, I didn't originate this, but I was thinking, thinking about it, because this person kept saying, how, how thankful would you be if I gave you $10 million? And I'm so thankful. I'd pay off all my debt. You know, and I, some people, like I asked the children's workers in the back today, and one of the children's workers said, I'm calling my boss like, tomorrow. Hey, I ain't coming in. <laughs> and then the follow-up is this. But what if, the catch is, I give you $10 million today, but if you accept it today, you die tomorrow. Are you still taking the $10 million? No. And then, this is what really got me. Why is it that if someone gave me $10 million today, I would be over the moon excited tomorrow? I'd be like, I'd go on Navient student loans, be like, goodbye forever. I'd go to my mortgage people, and I'd pay them in wheelbarrows full of pennies. I'd be like, do you take it and get away from me? I'd pay off the debt of the chapel. I'd build a splash pad, not for the kids, just for me to play in Monday through Friday. Do all sorts of these fun things. But then as soon as you say, but if you receive it today. If you accept it today, you, you die tomorrow. We all say no. And if you're looking at the weight of scale here, what we're functionally saying is the promise of tomorrow is worth more to me than $10 million is. Yet I don't act that way every day that I wake up because I still don't have the $10 million. And I know like when I was thinking about sharing this illustration, I knew that Edwin Newman was going to be like, no, I took the $10 million. I put it in a trust fund for my wife and say, peace out. Deuce is going to see Jesus, right? I knew it. Okay. I knew that you'd be there doing that weird thing. Uh, but perspective matters. How we view life and the perspectives through which we view life in this world matter. Because right now, as in all phases of history, there are clashing perspectives on how we ought to operate, how we ought to treat our neighbors, how we ought to work, how we ought to love our friends and our enemies and our frenemies. And today, in the last chapter of the book of Daniel, um, and I know some of you, if you've been following along, you're thinking, wait a second, we, we were Daniel 10, just a few verses last week. 
But we're going to read a one section in Daniel 11, and then we're going to look at some scripture in Daniel 12. So if you want to open your Bibles there, that's where we're going to be camping. If you have the Bible app, you can go on the events page if you didn't scan the QR code, and you can still look up the events by clicking the little three lines on the bottom right of your Bible app, and then go into the events, and it will bring it up there for you. Today we're talking about the end of the world, and it's important. Because some people, many people, my entire life have thought, the end of the world is near. One of my favorite stories uh, that I remember hearing uh, when I married into my wife's family is her grandma Hillstrom. Wait, was it her grandma Hillstrom or was it your mom? That was grandma Hillstrom, right? Would run home every day. I love this story. Like as a child, she would get out of school. This is back in like 1842. And she would run home uphill in the snow because she wanted to be with her mom when the rapture happens. The rapture is that Christian doctrine where the great Dyson of heaven sucks all the believers up and leaves all the degenerates here on earth, for lack of a better way of saying it. I, I mock it that way because I don't particularly believe in what has been popularized as the Left Behind series with Kirk Cameron and then the, the subpar version with Nicolas Cage, where there's this, there's this rapture and it sucks all the believers up, and then for seven years, the world is in total chaos. And I'm not saying that you have to believe what I believe. I'm just saying that after studying the Scripture, that's not the account that I come to. When I read the Scripture, I don't believe that that is precisely what it teaches, mostly because the Scripture is very, very vague when it comes to the end times. Every book that talks about end times which are primarily Revelation, and then this section of Daniel, and then there's a portion in Matthew, but the, the Matthew portion is the most explicit. Otherwise, there's these beasts and dragons and the stars giving birth and there's things coming out of the ocean and there's lampstands and there's all of, these, all of these illustrations that when we read them with our 2021 Western brains, we try to think, okay, what does that look like? And you'll have pastors saying, well, the, this thing in the book of Revelation, it's a, it's a helicopter. You know, back then they thought it was a flying scorpion because they didn't have a word to, to really put to it, but it's an Apache helicopter. And every few years you'll have some uh, some ding-dong that's saying the end of the world is on this date. Some guy in California put billboards up and down the interstate, the I-5, saying this is when the world's going to end. Guess what happened the next day? All those billboards came down, and we're still here. Now, don't get me wrong. I loved joking around about it. I taught Bible at a private Christian school. Um, just for a year, I was supposed to substitute teach for a week, and they kept me for a year and a half. And, uh, and we had this kid who always fell asleep. And I knew the school sort of had taught the normal view of the rapture. And so this kid who always fell asleep, uh, one day he fell asleep. I said, here's what we're going to do, everyone. Everyone take your jackets off and your shoes off, just quietly as you can, and just leave them in your desk. And then we're going to walk out to the hallway, and I'm just going to bang on the door as loud as I can. And we did that to this poor kid, and he wakes up. And at first, she's confused because he was sleeping, which he always did. And he was always confused. And then he starts looking around. <gasps> no, 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 no. <laughs> and I'm just in the hallway thinking, this might be the greatest point of my life up to this point right here. Just using theology to terrify. And then I was thinking, man, if he like pees himself, I'm going to be in so much trouble with the staff. It was the only, uh, it was the weirdest thing because I got called to the principal's office when I was in school and when I taught at this school, I got called to the principal's office multiple times as a teacher. Mr. Torona, please report at the principal's office. And I was like, Ugh. and that was a similar day. 
He thought he got left behind. It's important for us to understand the rhythms of the Bible. So we're going to look at what things we can look for, and then we're going to talk about why and how Daniel connects to Revelation, and then we're going to put this book away. And if you want to study the last few chapters, the reason why we didn't go through 11 is because 11 is just going through. It's a recapping of all of the kings, a king from the north, a king from the south. They're going to fight. A king from the north, a king from the south. They're going to fight. And God is guiding history, and he's guiding history through the rhythm of these wars of broken leaders. But then we're going to come to the big bad king. And you might have names that want to pop into your head. I would ask you to try to refrain from identifying one person as the ultimate antichrist, the end of the world leader, because we don't know who it will be. But I'm going to give you some reprieve so that you're going to be free to leave here and call people the antichrist as you would so desire. Sound like a plan, fam? Okay, I'm going to pray us in because there's a lot today. Jesus, um, we're going to jump into this part of your word that can be immensely confusing and it's full of images that Bible scholars have disagreed on, and it's full of times and dates that Bible scholars and pastors and priests have disagreed on for thousands of years, Lord. So I ask that your spirit would come here and speak to us and teach us and guide us and help us to walk away with a healthy, you-centered picture of the end of the world that focuses on your victory more than just our pain that focuses on your redemption and your protection more than just our suffering. Lord, I pray that we would, for one hour, be able to put to the back of our minds those images in the movies of piles of clothes left behind, um, and that we would come to your word as children to learn and to grow. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the end times, there's going to be a person that rises up. If you've been in the church a long time, what are some of the names that this end of the world person is going to be called? One is maybe the anti-Christ. There's also the b e. Here's what to look for, and here's what I want us to think about. In the book of Revelation, Revelation calls any evil empire Babylon, and that's who Daniel is living with right now. But Revelation called the Rome, Romans the Babylonians. They referred to any tyrannical government as Babylon. So wherever you lie on the political spectrum, if you want, you can call any political group that you don't like or you think is oppressing you or trying to take away your identity in Christ, you can refer to them as Babylon. And what we see in the book of Daniel is this picture that... empire will fall and then a new empire will slowly rise and they will choose good and evil for themselves and then the empire will fall and this is the pattern throughout the bible it starts on page one god created adam and eve and their little garden rose and then they chose good and evil for themselves they said i'm going to define good and evil on our own terms and then there was a fall and then the same thing happened with Abraham and then Moses and Isaac and Jacob. The same thing happened with King David with his sons. There was a time of faithfulness and then slowly people begin to choose good and evil for themselves. They want to define what is morally right and morally wrong based on whatever standard they pull out of thin air. And then at a climax of, of that choice, civilization falls. And this is a description of the king, the ruler, at the end. This is what they're going to be like. In verse 36 of Daniel chapter 11, we're just going to read 36 and 37, then we're going to jump to Daniel 12. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak 
astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. I've never met a human who magnifies themselves above all ever in my life. We literally live on a place called social media where it's called Facebook. Before that, it was called MySpace. You want to know why the first one didn't take off? Because it was called Friendster. No one cares about friends. They care about themselves. True story. Now, my favorite thing I've been looking at this week, because I'm a sort of a neophile tech nerd, I've been looking at the metaverse. Anyone heard about the metaverse? I'm super pumped about this thing. So Facebook changed their name to Meta. And they're taking these Oculus things and augmented reality, and they're looking into the future when we are going to put on some sort of ocular device or contact lenses, and we are going to live on the fence between real life and the digital world. Well, you'll be able to have glasses on, and instead of having to look up a Yelp review, you'll just look over at the restaurant, and it'll say four and a half stars. It'll pop up like a heads-up display where you'll be able to buy digital clothes and digital homes. And when you go into a home in the future, I, I promise you this is probably what's coming. You're going to go into homes and they're going to be blank white walls everywhere. No more decorations because you're going to be able to populate it with digital images and everyone with their ocular devices are going to be able to see how you've decorated your house for that day. Halloween, Christmas decorations are going to be epic. And we're all going to be living in this weird, half-digital, half-realistic world. And I know some of you are saying, not me, not right now. You have no idea how strong I'll stand. Stand as strong as you want. It's coming whether you participate or not. Because the people that have the money, the people that make the decisions are doing this because they can make more money doing it. And you might think, nobody's ever going to buy into that. Who would ever pay money to have digital things? Talk to any kid who's played any video game in the last two years. I have a friend, a grown man-child friend. He spent tens of thousands of dollars on skins in a video game. And you may think, well, that's super odd. Why would somebody do that? I don't know. I'm about to drop tens of thousands of dollars on a particular shade of tile. I mean, technically my wife, I only picked one thing in the whole house. I'm about to drop hundreds of dollars on the floor tile of the master and bathroom shower. That's all I got to pick. Well, but that's real life. That serves an application. But we spend money on things that aren't real life all the time. We spend money on cloud storage. To store what? Photos that exist where? Do your photos exist in photo albums anymore? Do any of you under the age of 20 know what a photo album is? Like seriously. Like when you say, hey, let's get out a photo album. How many of you parents have full-blown photo albums for your children? Okay, you're all better than me. Or you're over the age of 45. I don't. You want to know where my photo albums are? I don't know. They're like in Mark Zuckerberg's back wallet. I have no idea where they are. I'm like, my photo album is when Facebook says, hey, you have memories today. And I look at it for two seconds and say, Silas, look how cute you are. And he goes, oh. And then photo album over. You see, we are a culture addicted to self-glorification. So it's not that we can just point to a leader in the end times where the leader will be this self-glorifying, self-addicted, self-focused, self-absorbed person because those leaders don't pop out of anywhere. 
Those leaders pop out of, a, out of a soup that we have all created of ourselves. And it's the human story. The human story can be found in the first three pages of the Bible, and it repeats all the way through the Bible and into our lives today, where we are given an opportunity to connect with God and to connect with others, where God says, take the raw stuff of this earth and bring order to it and make something amazing for human flourishing. We call that business. We call that enterprise. We call that farming and gardening and all of the things that we're called to do. They just had a simpler version. But then we say, thanks, God, for all these amazing things. Thanks, God, for mangoes. But I'm going to choose this for me, and I don't care if you say it's wrong or not, because it looks good to me, and I want it. That is what the leader at the end is going to do, and it's what countless leaders have done throughout history. In this is written around uh, between around 550 uh, BC, before, before Jesus, 550 years before Jesus, 160 years before Jesus, the ruler came up, and if you've been following along, his name was Antiochus. And he did a lot of the things that Daniel's going to talk about. He took the temple away to where they couldn't sacrifice animals and do their religion. He set up pigs, and he sacrificed pigs on their altar. He prohibited the Jewish people from going in, and there was this big, massive war where the Maccabeans came in, and they took back the temple, and that's where the, you get the, the holiday Hanukkah from. And the Jewish people still celebrate it to that day. But everyone thought that was the Antichrist because he did what Daniel talked about. He took away the temple from us. He set up desolation sacrifices on the temple sacrificial system. He was killing, he was killing Jewish people. That is who Daniel must have been talking about. Fast forward to when Jesus is here and he points back to the book of Daniel and he basically says, Caiaphas, Caiaphas is the the Antichrist. Caiaphas is the beast. Caiaphas is the great leader who will strike against God. Then you fast forward to the book of Revelation where the Apostle John points to Rome and says, no, Rome, Rome is now the great beast. Nero is the great beast. It's, it wasn't just Caiaphas. It wasn't just Antiochus. It wasn't just Nebuchadnezzar. It wasn't just all of these people. There's a pattern in history. Now here's where it's important for us as we look for the end of the world. We're going to look for a pattern where, like I said, it goes up, we choose good and evil for ourselves, and then God brings justice. Now, these will grow, the Bible teaches us, as time goes on, and there will be one final great Babylon where we'll get to this point and there's no going back, where you'll see, begin to see pieces of the Bible come right to the surface, where you'll begin to see massive, unified, one-world governing powers rise up, when you'll begin to see everyone moving toward one currency, when you begin to see people unable to purchase things if they don't have a particular mark or tribe that they align or associate with. And that is going to be the great Babylon. All of these little Babylons are showing us the pattern for the great final end. When God will say, this is it. This is the, the maximum level of evil that I'm going to allow to persist. And when it gets to this point, on this day, when I've already called all the people who will call me father into my forever family, that is when I'm going to end history as everyone that has ever lived knows it. And Daniel gets this vision, and it is wild. And this is just one piece. And this is verse, chapter 12, verse 1. As Daniel sees these kings arising, this great evil king arising, it says, at that time shall arise Michael, Michael the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as has never been since there was a nation until that time. So there will be a time of trouble they will be unmatched in every time of trouble. And I need you to understand this perspective, the perspective of, of thinking outside of your box, outside of your bubble, outside of your block, 
the perspective that right now, there are many believers here that say, the end is near, the end is near, and they'll point to all these things in the Western world. Look at, look at what's happening. Look at the persecution that's happening to the church in America. And I would, I would dare to point out the, the persecution that's happening to the church in Iran, the church, the church in Afghanistan, the church in India, the church in China. What we have experienced is nothing. It's a, a microcosm. It, it's significant to us because our level, our threshold of persecution is so narrow. But it's not like your pastors are being arrested and beheaded and put on the, the local public broadcasts to deter you from gathering. It's not like the, the women and children are being killed by gunpoint, by military, for simply reading the Bible or praying to Yeshua, Jesus. There will be a time of trouble, such as never been seen since nations started. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. See, God doesn't say, I'm going to make it easy for you. God says, there will be an immense time of trouble, and my promise to you, and his promise to you today, today, is not, I'm going to make it easier for you. His promise to you is, I will deliver you. God is not about just paving the smoothest road, making the easiest path to navigate life. God is about us depending on him because dependence is another word, another version, another way to think about faith. The more we lean on God, the more we trust in God, and God says, when you go through these hard times, you don't have to be afraid for the end because I will deliver you. When life gets difficult, because in these big Babylon cycles we see of nations, you'll see the same thing if you look at your life. There will be times where you're following God and then times where you begin to choose right and wrong, good and evil, and you define them in your own brain and you don't consult the word of God. You don't, you're not in a community. You're not connected with God in prayer. And then God says, that's not quite right. And he'll, he'll reveal something in your life. He'll bring something to light and it will hurt. But he's doing this to deliver you and I. When the nations are raging, when the wars are going on all around us, God doesn't say, I'm going to make it easier for believers. But he does say, you will be delivered. Who will be delivered? The very next line, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. There's a book. I think this is really cool. I bet you in like 200 years, when books are all in museums, English translators or whatever language, they're going to have to translate this to like an iPad screen or an Oculus device. Everyone whose name is not found in God's Oculus. God has a book, and it's spoken about a handful of times in the Bible. It's the book of life. And when you are a follower of Jesus, your name gets written in the book of life. And it says that in Revelation 13, for example, it says that people's names appeared in that book of life before the foundation of the world was laid. So when God was writing this whole story, seeing these, these waves of history going up and down, these people rebelling, these people saying, we're going to be our own gods, we're going to be in charge of ourselves, God says, look, in this whole massive drama that's unfolding throughout human history, I've got this book, and I've already, I've already got these people I'm calling to me, and they're not going to be able to resist me because I'm going to show them who they are and who I am, and they're going to see me for all of the love that I have for them. And and as they come to me, their name gets written in the book. There will be people, as we'll see in our next sermon series, that claim the name of Jesus but are not of Jesus. There will be, there will be people who attend church every week and are yet very, very far from God because they, they come to a church gathering to get something from God, to get his stuff, to get his blessings, to get his favor, rather than to get him. 
You see, he must be the object of our pursuit. And when he is, then our name is written in the book. When he is our greatest treasure, when we find our satisfaction for life in him, that's ways you can tell he is the person for whom my heart beats and my mind thinks and my hands move and act. And many of these who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. I used to, um, and I still do, I'm going to be fully honest with you, the idea of hell is painful. Not me saying hell as a, as a metaphysical plane of existence will be painful. That's, that's totally understood in the Bible. If you read the Bible, whatever your view is on hell, you're thinking, man, that sounds like it hurts, like fire, darkness, gnashing of teeth. Now, these are images, because obviously, like fire and darkness, fire makes light, darkness is dark. So there are images, though, meant to teach us something. But I used to want to, I wanted to, I wanted to go to God and say, God, I don't understand hell. I ha- is there a way that I could not believe in hell and be your follower, to be a teacher of your word? Because hell is scary, and it's scary for me because there are times, and, and I have to stuff down emotions, And I've gotten better at it. My wife will attest to this. I've gotten better at pressing down my emotions because there'd be times when we're at Disney or when we're driving down the freeway or when I'm walking by a stranger at Chick-fil-A and I just have this immense pain. Like so many people are going to go to hell forever. How can that be, God? How can it be that some people get everlasting life and some people, to their shame, they're, they're swallowed by an everlasting contempt. How can it be that some people go to the lake of fire, a place you created for Satan and his demonic following, and some people get eternal joy with crystal rivers and funky trees and beautiful robes or whatever we get? And I wanted to believe there was no hell. I wanted to because when I came to Christ, I popped into Jesus' family and no, not many people around me believed in Jesus. I was, I was looking at my closest friends and my family and they were like, no, we don't believe in that Jesus stuff. So I'm thinking, but they're going to go to hell. This is unreal. Like, why don't they just accept Jesus? Because the question I have and the question that gets asked of me now, because my, my kids are unfortunately thinking like me, like, Daddy, how could you be happy in heaven if one of your kids denies Jesus and goes to hell? Well, that's a crappy question, bud. Because I don't know the answer. I mean, if one of my kids died in this life and I'm still left alive, I'm devastated for the rest of my life. Let alone, how do we answer the question, what if someone that we love dearly is apart from God forever? Their name's not in the book of life. What do we do? And I I read the Bible, and I read it, and I read it, and I came to the same conclusion. Like, either God is God, and what he says is true, and I'm going to accept what he says is truth to the best of my ability, to the best of my understanding, in which case I, I have to accept that there is a place for those who aren't adopted and saved and washed by the blood of Jesus and put into God's family. There's a place where they go, and it's apart from God forever, where they're screaming out for a drop of water to quench their tongue. It's not just a, it's not just a place where they go for a thousand years, a hundred years, ten thousand years. It's a place where they go for a trillion, trillion, trillion years.
And it's a place where people who I love in this life will probably go. It's a place that I don't understand and I want to understand. It's a place where when the end of the world comes, Jesus says it comes like a thief in the night. It's a place where at the end of days, there is no moment to finally repent and turn. It's a place where someone who says in their heart, you know what, I'm going to give my life to Jesus on my deathbed, or I'm going to give my life to Jesus when I see the clouds part and I hear a loud noise. That's what I'm going to give my life to Jesus. It's, there's, no, there's no space, there's no time. Like a thief in the night, Jesus comes. When the trumpet sounds, the end is ushered in. And the question you should have, because I have it, is this is crazy sounding. If you didn't grow up in the church, like me, you didn't grow up in the church, when I first grasped the context of hell, as a baby Christian, I thought, well, people deserve it because they do bad things. But then I realized we all do bad things. We only get out of hell because Jesus graces us with salvation, free gifts us salvation. Jesus, why don't you free gift more people with salvation? The Bible says he, he wrote it in the stars. He put it in nature. He, he put this picture of this incredible life all around us, but we as humans have chosen to not see those things and contain and control life in our own definitions of good and evil, right and wrong, good and bad, beautiful and ugly. And there's no way to escape it that I've ever found. Um, there was one pastor who'd, who wrote a book uh, called Love Wins, and then another pastor wrote a book to rebut it called Erasing Hell. And it was the funniest thing to me because one pastor clearly just stopped reading his Bible and one pastor kept on reading it. And it scares me, though, because I don't know if we're in the last Babylon cycle or not. There are many aspects of end times. If you fuse Revelation together with Daniel and with Matthew and other few other passages where you can see, like, oh, these things are happening. It seems awfully suspicious. We could be in the very last Babylon cycle. It could be on the way up to where we'll have the pinnacle evil ruler. It's going to be somebody who I think is going to be CEO of a pharmaceutical company. They're the worst in my mind. And then the world's going to come crashing in one instant. Because now God brings justice and brings down kingdoms, but then he brings down the entire existence of all humanity on earth. Is your name in the book? Is your name not? Will shine like the brightness of the sky above. Like the stars forever and ever. Here's a weird thing that this verse, this book says. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time uh, knowledge shall increase. So this angelic vision says, Daniel, all these things I'm telling you, I need you to, to lock this down. And what's interesting is that the, the Jewish readers would read what we have here in the book of Daniel, and they would say, okay, he got a vision about the end. There's a king that's going to set himself up, and they, they saw kings for the next few hundred years over and over set themselves up as the primary king image. I don't think it's a, it's a coincidence that the majority of kingdoms from early in history, when they have money, whose face do they put on the money? Their own faces. 
I think it's so funny. They, we have these things in the Bible about images. And it's like, who are we going to put in the $1 bill? Let's put George Washington in the $1 bill. Who are we going to put on the 100? Benjamin Franklin. Like all these people we look up to, all these people who did great things. And I'm not for or against it. I mean, if you have Benjamins, by all means, give them to me. But what I'm saying is, from the time of Caesar till now, we put images of people, leaders, on money. Political leaders, primarily. It's very interesting that when the time comes, at the end, there will be one leader who's, if I'm going to guess, whose face is going to be on everything. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be until the end? Until the end of these wonders. And I heard the man clothed who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when shattering the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. Now this is where people get into crazy Jesus number puzzle things. Well, he said a time, a time, and a, time, a half a times. And in Daniel chapter 4, he used the word times in the dream to refer to a year. A time is a year, so this must be two and a half years. So then people will take all of these numerologies and try to plug them in. Well, it means this, like when the bad king comes up and does something evil in the temple, there will be two and a half years of this, but then 1,300 days of that, and we get so caught up in this that we're not doing what Jesus commends us to do. I think that Jesus understood that as people were trying to find these little details to figure out the exact date so we can buy a billboard. And Jesus says, I want you to be like people who wait with oil at night waiting for the master to return and have enough oil to keep your lamp lit and keep your eye on the horizon. Keep your eye looking out for signs. Keep your eye looking out for my return. Be faithful to me until I come back. What Jesus didn't say is, I want you to take these obscure passages that are written very image-driven visions and I want you to calculate with calculus precision what exactly that means. There's whole books called Bible numerology, Bible code, crack the code, know the system, the undercover Bible, the background of the Bible's secrets, all of these books that people will gobble and eat up because they, they purport to give a little semblance of when or what something will happen in this world. The Bible is very clear in this section. I am unclear. That's what the Bible's telling us. It's a vision, number one. Visions up to this point in the Bible, if you haven't been keeping track, consist of beings covered in eyeballs. Visions consist of winged animals. Visions consist of horns that grow and shatter more horns off of weird goats and rams, and they fight. This is what's happening in the book of Daniel, in the books of Ezekiel and Isaiah. And then there are people nowadays who say, but I know exactly what this means. You're out of your mind if, if you think you can pinpoint down if anyone thinks, because for thousands and thousands of years, people have been reading this and coming up with different answers, and I think the reason is very, this reason is very clear. This book, these visions are meant to speak to believers of the Jewish people all the way to us now. There's a reason why God hit print screen on these wild books in the Old Testament. It's because he wanted us to have them. He wanted us to learn something from them. If this only applied to Antiochus in 160s, he didn't have to publish this forever for all of us. If this only were to be referring to Rome, why would we still need to have this book today? Because there were plenty of other books written around all of these times by prophets in this book as well who wrote their own letters that we see in the Bible. Well, in this letter I wrote to you, we don't have those letters, but we have these ones. 
because God wants us to see patterns in history. God wants us to see patterns in what's going to happen at the end. And all of this stuff that's unveiling now, no matter where you land on which political spectrum, I can promise you this. It's part of God's plan within a Babylon cycle to either have evil crushed at the end of it or for it to be the final Babylon cycle of all time. Charlie has told me many times, um, Jesus is going to come before you, you die, right? Or you felt that at some point. When you were six, you felt it. When you were 10, and I felt it too. I thought, I think Jesus could come back. But the older I get, the more I realize, I think similar to Paul, because Paul wrote Corinthians early on, and he's like, Jesus is coming back. Nobody get married. And then like 20 years later, he's like, wow, people are still getting married. We should probably write something about marriage in the Bible. <laughs> As I get older, I think he could come back, and I want to be ready every single day. And that perspective changes a lot. Because I may not see you tomorrow. I may not see you tomorrow. I may not see you tomorrow. So how can we love the people that we see today and give them just a glimpse of eternal perspective, just a glimpse of what life can be like with Christ? I, I've shared this many times before, and I'll close with this. You guys know that I'm obsessed with cemeteries. I've looked all, every time I go to a new place or I pass a cemetery, I've got to stop. And um, the oldest graves I'd ever seen were in a little mission called Mission San Luis Rey in North County, San Diego, near where I grew up. And they had graves from the 1700s of these, um, these Spanish missionaries that would come through. They'd do all these beautiful missions, and you take your kids on field trips there in school. It was like an annual thing for all the elementary kids. And I loved their cemetery. And that was the oldest I'd ever seen, 1700 years, 1700s. Last week, we went and fed um, the homeless down at Fifth Sunday. And it's right across the street from a cemetery. I'd never been there. I'm looking over. I'm like, ooh, that looks like a good cemetery. It's a good cemetery. So we did our, our we fed the people. It was, it was an amazing time. If you don't come in January, um, who are, who even are you? Come feed the homeless in January. It was rad. Kids did most of the serving. The adults just made sure that nobody got accosted physically. Um, and it was amazing to see like 10, 12, 13, 15-year-olds like doing the sandwiches. I met Jesus, by the way. That's a plus. If you go down there, you'll meet someone who's actually Jesus. Um, he told me his name was Jesus, and I said, you mean like Jesus? He said, I'm Jesus. I'm the one. And I was like, whoa, been looking for you for quite some time. But then afterwards, we've, after the first stop, I jumped over, and I told people I love finding old graves. I said, go to that little white building and look left and look on the ground. So I'm like, oh, this has got to be something cool. So I whoop, 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 jumped the building, jumped the wall with my kids, and I go over there, and there's a plaque on the ground. And it says, in 1987, when they were developing one of the skyscrapers in Tampa, they found an Indian burial ground. And by their best estimation, with all of the, the scientific experimentation they could do, the grave was approximately 2,000 years old. And they took the Indian burial ground, and they removed the remains, uh, according to some, you know, being safe, and they put them here underneath this plaque. So I was standing on top of a plaque thing of people Are you tracking this? I mean, I'm like, talk about those moments where you're just holding in tears. And I'm with my boys, so I'm like, yeah, yeah. I, I try to pretend in front of my kids that I'm like strong and emotionally stable, which are two lies, okay? And they know, and I'm just like, whoo, whoo, 
Like just the fact that they were breathing air that Jesus breathed on the other side of the flat earth. I thought, this is insane. Like I wanted to stay there and just like try to feel their good vibes. I don't even believe in vibes. I want to feel them. 2,000 years old. They're long gone. They've met Jesus face to face. And how many people from then, 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on the cross until now, have had the opportunity to hear the love of God, to hear the good news that Jesus died for them, that there will be an end to all this madness we see around us, that one day there will be no more need for doctors or for lawyers or for pastors because there will be perfect bodily health, there will be perfect justice, and there will be no one to need to proclaim the good news because we'll all be in the kingdom forever. I don't have the answers of how we'll deal with the fact that people that we love in this life will not be with us in the next, but at some point I have to ask this question, which is the question you have to ask today, just like the Babylon cycle governments, just like Adam and Eve. Are you going to allow God to be the God over your life, or are you going to be pressing your godness over this book? Are you going to let this book tell you and guide you? Or are you going to say, well, I don't like this, so I'm going to delete that part? Because one of those is you being God, and one of those is God being God. And I pray that God would be God of your life today. Let's pray.